We have more Brian Koberger news. A motion to continue in the Lori Vallow and Chad Day Bell matters has been filed. And then finally, our dumb criminal of the day. Let's talk about it. Welcome to Crime Talk. My name is Scott Reich. You know the drill. Subscribe if you haven't. Like if you do. Hit that little bell so you receive notifications and leave me a comment below. And remember, you can listen to us anytime on your favorite podcasting apps. Now, before we get to the docket, you know we got to support the people that support Crime Talk. And if you go to the link, crimetalksearch.com, you'll be able to get a background subscription service. And when you have that background subscription service, you can conduct as many background searches as you desire, and you can cancel at any time. And when you do get that subscription, literally, you type in the person's name, and a report is generated while you wait after asking just a series of questions. And that report is generated and sent to you via email. And the report is going to contain information about property records that people have that you're searching, whether they have criminal histories, do they have to be on any of those public registries, if you know what I mean? Are they divorced? Are they married? We talked about that so many times when it comes to these dating apps, you have to protect yourself. Don't become a victim. Knowledge is power. You have to get the information. Go to crimetalksearch.com and you'll be happy you did. All right, let's go ahead and open the record for January 6th, 2023. And let's begin with the docket. First, we have a copy now of the order that the court signed in the Brian Koberger case preserving the crime scene. The order reads, the court having before it the defendant's motion to preserve crime scene and evidence, there being no objection by the state and good cause appearing now, therefore, it is hereby ordered that the crime scene located at 1122 King Road, Moscow, Idaho, including the home and outbuildings, trailers, vehicles, and curtilage shall be preserved, which means the house will be locked. Crime tape will be remaining on site. Police presence is not required. The crime scene will remain preserved until February 1st, 2023. Further order of the court that all samples and evidence collected by or generated by the state in this matter, including but not limited to bodily fluids, blood tissues, notes, slides, photographs, or other relevant information shall be held and preserved by the state for the defense. What does that really mean? Well, rarely, rarely does the defense get an opportunity to go get the access to a crime scene um, in a case, particularly something that's taken some seven, eight weeks ago at this point. Um, very unusual. I can tell you as a criminal defense attorney, been doing this for 28 years, that rarely ever happens. So that is good for the defense. They get the crime scene. They can go in there and see if something's been missed because normally I'm telling you that just doesn't happen. Normally you have to go ask the people that live there now, like, Hey, we're the defense. Can we come in? And they say, no. So, uh, Interesting that the defense made that motion early on. State didn't object. Frankly, there's really no basis to do that. Only people that should be objecting, obviously, are the property owners who probably want to get the property back and decide what they want to do with it. Do they want to bulldoze it, have it completely cleaned, and re-rent it as soon as possible? It's a college town. Somebody will live in that house. Would you? I don't know. Anyway, uh, so we know that has uh, taken place and... Uh, you don't normally see this in a case, but 
as soon as an arrest warrant was issued, the public defenders were notified and they immediately filed that motion uh, to preserve the crime scene. Good work for the defense in that regard. Next, an FBI surveillance team apparently watched Brian Koberger take out the trash at his parents' house and he just happened to be wearing surgical gloves at 4 a.m. before dumping uh, that trash into a neighbor's bin. Now, new details of how the authorities uh, got the alleged quadruple murder have been revealed. The officers the, uh, watched Mr. Koberger for at least four days before his arrest, and the officers were tasked with tracking Koberger so they could arrest him and soon as a warrant was issued, as well as trying to get a hold of an object to compare DNA to the sample found at the crime scene. Now, you remember... You can't just go into somebody's house or say, walk up to them and say, give me a sample of your DNA with a buckle swab where they put basically a Q-tip in there and say, we're going to take this and compare it. You have to have a court order to do that. But when you discard something into the garbage, it's no longer basically yours. You have no expectation of privacy. It is abandoned. So then the police can then take that item, swab it, test it and see whose DNA is in fact on that item. So there will be no motions to suppress uh, from items taken from the neighbor's trash because like I said, there's no expectation of privacy in the sense that uh, the cops came in without a warrant. They didn't need one at that particular moment. So that is good for the prosecution. Now, apparently, uh, the, like I said, the police saw him outside his parents' home on numerous occasions wearing surgical gloves. Could that be because he's hyperphobic as it relates to germs or something? Or is it that he knows that the police may be on to him and he is not going to try to do anything that is going to leave a DNA sample anywhere uh, that could possibly be picked up? Let me know in the comments what you think germaphobe or is is a consciousness of guilt him uh, trying not to uh, leave any dna samples laying around and apparently all of the items that were collected from the trash were sent to the idaho state lab and then they were able to uh, confirm dna found uh, on the sheath on the knife as we talked about yesterday uh, take a look at yesterday's video if you haven't seen that already we go into great detail as well as the video that we did outlining everything in the affidavit, not just a quick summary, but everything. So you have all the facts that the court was relying upon. And then they were able to compare that DNA from the trash to the uh, sheath and made a comparison uh, what they believe to be a match. Now what's going to take place is that the prosecution is going to get an order from the court saying, hey, judge, we have this DNA on this button on this K-bar sheath that was found at the house. And we have this DNA sample taken from Pennsylvania, from the trash, and they use this genealogical study where basically it could be the son of the dad, so to speak. Uh, they're going to want a direct match. So they're going to go get an order from the court. It's usually called a 411, and court is going to order that the uh, prosecution be allowed to take that buckle swab. Then they have an exact comparison, and they'll be able to see if they have a match. Now, as we noted yesterday, and like I said, you can see the complete 
uh, reading of the affidavit for arrest warrant if you go to our video that we uh, did just yesterday. But the police believe that the murders occurred between 4 a.m. and 4.25 a.m. on November 13th. And the affidavit states that one of the surviving roommates in the home at the 1122 King Road came face to face with a masked killer after hearing a male voice say he was here to help. The victims obviously were students uh, Kaylee Gonzalez, Madison Mogan, Zaina Kernogle, and Ethan Chapin. The two surviving roommates, Bethany Funk and Dylan Mortensen, provided key information to the police and identified in the affidavit uh, simply by their initials. And as we learned in the affidavit, victims Kaylee and Madison were found deceased on the third floor, while Ethan and Zaina were killed on the second floor, just down the hall from the survivors' Dylan's room. Now, police say that the uh, suspect vehicle, suspect vehicle number one, was a white Hyundai Elantra matching the car that Koberger drives. And that was first spotted on surveillance video entering the neighborhood at 3.29 a.m. and circled the area three times before returning a fourth and final time at 4.04 a.m. And around 4 a.m., Zayna received a DoorDash order from a delivery driver who came forward voluntarily and cooperated with police. Now, Dylan, whose room is on the second floor, told police that she was awoken about 4 a.m. to a noise that sounded like Kaylee playing with her dog in the third floor room. Dylan believes she heard Kaylee say, there's someone here. However, police noted that Zayna's phone was active at 4.12 a.m. and speculate it could have been her voice that Dylan heard. On hearing the voice, Dylan opened her bedroom door and saw nothing. Then hearing what she believed was crying from Zayna's room down the hall, Dylan opened the door again and heard a male voice saying, it's okay, I'm going to help you. Zayna was found deceased later, dead on her bedroom floor, while her boyfriend, Ethan, was stabbed to death in her bed. At 4.17 a.m., a security camera next door picked up the sounds of voices or a whimper, a loud thud, and the sound of a dog barking numerous times. Around this time, Dylan heard more crying and opened her bedroom door for a third time to see a chilling sight. A man, allegedly wearing a black clothing and wearing a mask covering his nose and mouth, walked down the hallway past Dylan as she stood in what the affidavit described as frozen shock. The man walked towards the home's rear sliding glass door and Dylan retreated into her bedroom and locked the door. She described the killer as at least five foot 10 inches tall, uh, athletically built, but not very muscular with bushy eyebrows. The then suspect vehicle, suspect vehicle number one, was then seen departing the neighborhood at 4.20 p.m. at a high rate of speed. Police say that among other evidence leaking Koberger to the murders, his DNA was found on the sheath of the K-bar knife uh, that was found beside the bodies of Madison and Kaylee on the third floor. And the police have not yet indicated a potential motive for the murders in any way. It's not even sure if he's allegedly knew the victims. However, the affidavit does state that cell phone data indicates he had visited the area on King Road at least 12 times prior to the murders, all but one of them either late at night or early in the morning. Now, what we do know, and here's something, there's a couple little things you have to take a look at here, is Originally, the police described a Hyundai Elantra 2011 to 2013. Then they believe they changed it to 
a later Elantra uh, because that was what he drove, what Kroberger allegedly drove was a 2015 Elantra. So the defense is gonna make some hay about that as well, basically saying, you got the wrong car. That's what they're gonna try to do. Obviously the DNA is going to be the hardest to overcome, but we're gonna have to wait and see with more evidence that is released, information that's released. And then on the cell phone information, obviously they say that he blacked out his phone or put it basically on airplane mode during the killings and then it turned on later. Obviously the defense is gonna argue, well, he wasn't in the area at the time. They got the wrong car. Uh, because they changed what their original belief was as to the year of the Hyundai to fit the the facts that they are now pursuing. This is the argument the defense is going to have to make. As it relates to the cell phone data, it really depends. We've talked about this here on Crime Talk numerous, numerous times. Your cell phone generally goes to the closest cell phone tower. However, if that tower is full or maybe out of service, it will go to connect to another tower. It doesn't necessarily mean you're in that area. And remember, when we're talking cell phone tracking information, we're talking about towers. We're talking a very large radius. We're not talking specific GPS uh, location information, uh, at least as far as we know, at least not from the affidavit. So 10 miles away, it's not uncommon. I've had experts that will say, Yes, they'll always, the phone is going to try to connect to the closest tower, but if there's maintenance issues, it's down. Lots of different things, geographical things, that a cell phone uh, could connect to a tower 10, 20, 30 miles away. It just really depends uh, what's going on. I assure you, one of the experts that the defense is gonna have is they're going to get a cell phone person to say, is it possible that his phone was back in bed and they got the wrong car? And the DNA, I'm sure they can come up with some explanation. It's a party house. Whoever left the sheath there maybe touched it up against something It transferred. That's going to be the argument just from our initial uh, reading of the discovery. Now, we also know, you know, with the whole glove thing, that's very, very interesting. But you can explain that away if you're on the defense team. Also, he's going to have to be able to explain why he detailed his car. Now, remember, I told you I spoke with someone associated with the case last week, and they said that he had detailed his car shortly after the alleged uh, time period where these murders were, November 13th. Now information's coming out to confirm that, that he meticulously cleaned his car after the murders that took place on November 13th. And I assure you, when the car was seized, they went through it literally with a fine tooth comb and even smaller, I assure you, to see if there was any chance that some evidence from that house, some blood evidence, something was transferred from the shoe to inside the car that didn't get cleaned. We're going to have to see what the results are as it relates to that car. But like I said, apparently the car was cleaned inside and out not missing an inch, according to reports. It's going to get interesting. And obviously, the victim's bill of rights in Idaho is going to take uh, effect in this particular case, because obviously, there's a violent crime and victims are involved. And we know that the parents of uh, Kaylee Gonsalves have said that they want the death penalty for their daughter's uh, alleged killer, Mr. Koberger. But they say that they'll ultimately forgive him. And then finally, as we know, Mr. Koberger is apparently quite the devout vegan. 
And the uh, sheriff there in Lake Todd County says, hey, we'll try to accommodate his vegan diet the best we can. But the sheriff said, I assure you, we're not going to comply with his dietary needs uh, if it requires uh, us going to have to buy new pots and pans. Because as you may recall, reports are that he is such a uh, devout vegan that he never wanted to use a pot or pan that may have uh, been in contact with beef in any way. So... Sheriff's not going to buckle under to that, sure you of that. All right, we'll keep bringing you the news on that case as it develops. It's going to get good. I know he's got he's going to have the resources through the public defender's office to zealously represent this case and uh, it's going to be good. All right, let's move on to another case in Idaho. I don't know, is there something in the water out there lately? I don't know. Anyway, well, Lori Vallow and Chad DeBell are charged with the deaths of uh, the children, J.J., uh, Tylee, and then the death of Chad DeBell's wife, Tammy. They're scheduled to go to trial here in a couple of months, but the defense indicated that um, they weren't going to be ready. And now Mr. Pryor, through uh, for on behalf of uh, Chad DeBell, has formally filed his motion to continue. And why, you may say, it's basically that he cannot reasonably be prepared. He states that uh, the mitigation process really has not uh, gone the way he would like it to in the sense that he's been too busy to uh, do what he needs to do. And hey, have we mentioned this is a death penalty case, so you're entitled to basically super hyper due process and judge there's just simply no way and oh by the way judge have i mentioned that uh, the prosecution still has not turned over all of the discovery in the case and therefore how can i possibly prepare until i have everything and he states which just shocks me to death is that the uh, mitigation investigation has only begun and that if they were to go to trial in April of 2023, they would violate his constitutional rights because he would not receive, Mr. Daybell would not receive effective assistance of counsel. My first thought is what has been going on for the last three years? That's all I'm saying, okay? I get it, it's a big case, lots of discovery, et cetera. But at the end of the day, it's not really that complicated. By now he knows what evidence the uh, prosecution has, what they're going to use. He's aware, he's talked to his client, he knows what factual investigation is needed to take place. And literally, every time you have a case, you're always working on mitigation. Asking the client, tell me your story. What's going on in your life? How did we get here? Was there drugs, alcohol, abuse, something that maybe explains what may have taken place, how we got here. Maybe not a defense, but mitigation, something that may reduce the culpability or possible sentence in the case. Why is this not getting started now? Now, curiously enough, Mr. Pryor had indicated that he had asked for a second attorney to join the case, and this attorney was going to need to be up to speed. However, in this motion to continue, Mr. Pryor does not make any mention of that. He basically just says he cannot be ready to proceed. And as you may recall, we brought you the motion that was filed that he said, hey, judge, you want us to have these uh, juror questionnaires by January 9th. And that date just seems so arbitrary and capricious. You just made it up, pulled it out of thin air. There's no way that we could possibly be ready. Well, guess what? Judge Boyce made an order regarding the defendant's objection to the um, 
order going back to December 16th. And the court basically says um, on December 16th, this court entered a scheduling order establishing certain deadlines ahead of trial to begin on April 3rd of 2023. On December 23rd, 2022, Mr. Daybell filed an objection to the December 16th, 2022 scheduling order and requested the court to vacate the January 9th deadline. As noted in the objection, the court has scheduled the deadline of January 9th for counsel to submit proposals relating to the questionnaire that the court intends to utilize in the jury selection process. And then the court goes on to state that uh, this is uh, reasonable and uh, it's the court's job to make sure that there is a fair and impartial uh, jury here that takes place. And then the court goes on into the analysis part of his uh, order, basically says, Daybell notes that this court previously found good cause to continue the trial from January 9th of 2023 in the memorandum decision and order entered October 28th. Central to the determination to find good cause was the mandatory stay of the Fremont County case, which is Lori Vallow's case, regarding legal competency issues. And um, Vallow had not waived her right to speedy trial and any good cause previously found to continue the trial on that uh, basis was abated. Daybell then refers to the court's conclusion the defense has indeed demonstrated that it is not and cannot be ready for trial in January 23 as justification by the January 9th uh, deadline. The court then notes, you know what, the initial deadline for those juror questionnaires was October 14th of 2022. It was only the day before October 13th that the deadline was vacated. The court would expect that the proposed questionnaire would have been substantially complete given the timing. Further, the issue of questionnaires has been before all parties since well before September 23rd. The parties are also aware that the questionnaires will be used in jury selection, and the proposals from counsel are a concession to allow for their adequate input. However, it is ultimately the responsibility of the court to qualify and seat a fair and impartial jury who will collectively be prepared to render judgment as to the facts of this case. Thus, while trial counsel has been provided an opportunity to provide such input, it's not ultimately the parties, but the court's obligation to determine the contents of the questionnaire. Therefore, the January 9th, 2020 deadline was not set arbitrarily. It was carefully selected after coordinating with the Ada County to provide adequate time to employ the questionnaire, which is a substantial task. Extending that deadline would necessarily complicate that burden and may result in the inadequate time to implement the important trial tool. The court does not find persuasive Daybell's argument that the development of mitigation evidence requires an extension of time. Counsel will still be provided an opportunity to conduct a voir dire at trial. This issue to be covered by the questionnaire are more limited in scope, and that was suggested in the objection. Given the substantial time that the parties have known for the use of the questionnaire, good cause to extend the deadline has not been demonstrated. Accordingly, the deadline remains. Council may choose to comply and supply the court with its proposed questionnaire or elect to let the deadline pass without submitting a proposal. In either case, the court will be the ultimate arbiter of a jury questionnaire and will do its duty to guide and protect the court and fairness of the proceedings. What has taken place with Judge Boyce there in Idaho? Maybe it's the New Year, New Year's resolution. Listen, the judge is not wrong. The court usually has its own questionnaire. And if you want to propose something, you, you have a deadline. You have to submit it. If you don't submit it, you waive it. I guess that's an ineffective assistance of counsel issue for Chad Daybell if he is ultimately convicted. But I like Judge Boyce um, saying no. 
So does that mean the trial date may get continued? We're going to have to wait and see. Why? Because the court can say, I'm going to hold you to this date. And jury questionnaires can be tweaked down the road. But I'm kind of liking the new Judge Boyce that we're seeing here. Hopefully he's going to say, no, we're not going to continue the trial. Uh, We'll see you in April. Of course, what's it going to depend upon? The prosecution. The prosecution wants this case set out much, much farther than April. So we'll see what the prosecution's position is because they will have to respond to the motion uh, filed by Chad Day-Bell. Now, the attorneys for Lori Vallow have filed some additional motions as well, and they want to uh, declare the Idaho capital punishment scheme unconstitutional. And basically their argument is, is uh, it's safe for the worst of the worst cases. This is different than the motion that they filed last week. And they specifically note that Mr. Archibald has uh, had 26 defendants charged with murder uh, that he's represented. Uh, Nine of those cases, the death penalty was pursued. And of those nine cases where it was pursued, only one defendant received the ultimate punishment. And that was a guy by the name of Tim Dunlap, to whom he was assigned to resentence him some 14 years after his crime. And Mr. Dunlap has already received the death penalty twice before, once by judge in Idaho and another by a jury in Ohio. Again, in support um, of their position, he's still in death row 31 years after his uh, sentence was imposed. So, uh, you know, death penalty, good, bad. I'm mixed clearly under the Constitution. It provides for it. The states can have their sentencing scheme if they want to, as long as they comply with federal law. Um, So I get that. Then the issue uh, becomes, is it more expensive? Uh, Does it ever really get implemented? That seems more of a policy question. How do you speed it up? How do you make it more fair so that it's not uh, done arbitrarily? Or it seems like, you know, Most of the people are perhaps poor minorities that have the death penalty imposed versus rich white people. Uh, Lots of arguments there. Let me know in the comments what you think. Should the state just drop the death penalty and let's get this trial over with and move on? Or should they continue to uh, pursue it? Anyway, uh, we will have a hearing again on uh, January 19th, 2023. Lori Vallow, uh, we'll let you know what happens there in regards to the... um, motions hearing as it relates to uh, invalidating the uh, Idaho death penalty system. Uh, Somehow, I don't think that's going to work out too well for Lori Vallow and her attorneys. And it seems like Lori Vallow wants to go to trial. Chad did Bell wanted to go to trial. He just didn't want to go to trial with Lori Vallow. We'll have to wait and see. And then finally today, before we head into the weekend, our dumb criminal of the day. Yes, this woman, a 25-year-old woman, was arrested after she allegedly robbed her former place of employment with a gun, which complicates everything. So according to the Gastonia Police Department, uh, back in October, officers responded to an armed robbery and found an employee who said that a female wearing a mask came in and struck the employee in the head with a handgun. And then the uh, person with the handgun doing the striking demanded money. That is the classic definition of an armed robbery, is it not? Police also say that at some point the suspect's mask fell off during the alleged robbery and uh, the worker actually happened to recognize who it was. And it was Natasha Otero, a former employee. Well, Miss Otero fled, left the mask and the firearm behind, which undoubtedly had DNA evidence if there was any doubt as to whether it was her, because there's also video. 
And then needless to say, the police obtained an arrest warrant, took her into custody on December 27th when she was contacted for shoplifting at a local store. The police noted that sometimes cases just close themselves. And yes, the suspect is being held in custody on a $50,000 bond. Congratulations, you are our dumb criminal of the day, Miss Natasha Otero. All right, thanks for watching. It's been a busy week. We will see you next time. Have a wonderful day, not just a great day. We'll see you next time on Crime Talk.